Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, December 2nd. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. Thank you for joining us. We have a jam-packed show for you tonight. In our top story, we will share a shocking radio broadcast that has led to a national day of mourning for baby Amanda. Our guest, Tim Head, will be discussing what's at stake in the Georgia runoff. In Abortion in the News, I will have all the news that's happened this week, including the Georgia Supreme Court's reinstatement of the Heartbeat Act. House Democrats elected pro-abortion representative Hakeem Jeffries as their leader. I will tell you about this decision and other political news. My guest, Dr. Michael New, will break down the latest abortion numbers released by the CDC, which contain some good news. National Public Radio, or NPR, is a nonprofit media outlet founded by the United States government in 1970. For its first 13 years, it received nearly half of its funding from the federal government through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In 1983, NPR nearly went bankrupt and had to undergo a restructuring process. Now it receives about 10% of its budget from our state and federal tax dollars. It's no secret that NPR is a left-leaning organization that is all in for abortion. But its broadcast of November 3rd was still shocking. A reporter visiting a Michigan abortion business just days before the election broadcast the murder by uh, by abortion of an 11-week baby. It's not easy to hear, so please be careful of who is in the room right now. This next patient is not one of the patients you heard before. She's asked that we not use her name. She's from Michigan. She already has one kid. She's having her abortion at about 11 weeks. Nearly all abortions in Michigan are before 13 weeks. And like many patients at Northland, she said I could record her procedure. We're going to hear some of that now. So I am just going to get you set up on the table, and we're going to do that sedation medicine. Okay. I'm going to pull this out under your legs. Most patients are partially awake during the procedures. They get IV medication for pain and anxiety. The lights are dimmed. There's soothing music. It actually feels a lot like a childbirth. The medical gown, your bare legs and stirrups, and a person next to you saying, you can do this. Just keep breathing. That's Brandy. She's one of the staffers. Her job is to monitor vital signs, but it is also to hold the patient's hand and talk her through this. Whether it's a birth or an abortion, it is often women guiding other women. You're going to hear this machine turn on now. Okay, it makes a loud noise. Blow it out, blow it out, breathe through it, breathe through it, blow it out. Listen to me, blow it out. If you hold your breath, it just makes it harder for you. Keep breathing. breathing. Just keep breathing, Brandy tells her over and over. I can't, the patient says at one point, when the cramps get painful. Yes, you can, Brandy tells her. You're doing it. And then within just a couple of minutes, it's over. Take some deep breaths for me. Catch your breath. You did it. Thank you guys so much. You did. You are welcome. I hope I didn't look too bad. You did great. You did great. Just fine. <sighs> yeah. You're okay. Thanks, <laughs> Thank you so Don't much. Don't you ever tell yourself what you can't do okay. here. Okay. 
So I'm gonna bring the lights up and we're gonna get your underwear on so we can get you over to recovery where you can relax, okay? Okay. One thing you hear a lot from patients is, I'm doing this because I have this picture for my life and the things that I want. One woman who asked that we not use her name says she wants to finish school. And she knows lots of women get abortions, but she says that does not make this feel easy. Like, almost feel like we feel filthy, we feel dirty. We feel like we have to sneak and do this. Some of us, yeah, put our lives at risk doing it. She says she didn't want to be trapped with the guy who got her pregnant. When she asked him to help pay for this abortion, he said the most he could do was split it. Guys, they're never held responsible for things like this, ever. It's always the woman. We always got to step up and take care of it, whether we keep it or not. It's always put in our lap. At the end of the day, when all the patients have gone home, Dr. Lance wraps up paperwork, Brandy restocks the rooms, And Stanley does his final rounds. They don't know what will happen after the election. But they do know that tomorrow, more patients will be here seeking abortions. We hear the mother's moans, but the child's scream is silent. Pro-lifers across the country were outraged at the broadcast, prompting Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life, and other leaders to call for a national day of mourning for the child they have named baby Amanda. December 3rd is the day. We are asking every pro-life individual, organization, and lawmaker to mark the day with fasting and special prayers, including masses, Father Frank Pavone said. These actions can be done privately, but the more they are done in common with groups, the better. We have to rehumanize with this abortion and this broadcast dehumanized, and we have to make a big deal of what this broadcast trivialized. The day of mourning will honor the baby and also ask God for forgiveness for the legal abortion deaths of more than 65 million children in the United States since 1973. Prayers also will be offered for the mother who chose abortion, for the abortionist and the staffers who helped, and the NPR employees who took part in the broadcast. An open letter was sent to the radio network pointing out the many things about the baby and about abortion the broadcast left out. If you would like to sign on to the letter, please go to priestsforlife.org slash babyamanda. Georgia has broken its record for the most ballots cast in a single day during early voting. With just four days until a pivotal runoff in the state's U.S. Senate race between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. On Monday, over 239,160 Georgians cast their ballots, according to Interim Deputy Secretary of State Gabriel Sterling. This surpasses the previous record for early voting in one day of over 233,252 votes in 2018. Sterling tweeted on Monday afternoon, saying that they'll break a quarter million votes today. We're excited, Sterling told CBS News. It's a testament to voters and poll workers and poll managers across the state to pull this off. It's not easy to move a quarter of a million people. Over the holiday weekend, when some counties were able to conduct early voting after Georgia Democrats sued, over 180,000 votes were cast. That was about 2.6% of the total active voter base in Georgia. According to data from the Office of Georgia's Secretary of State, 46% of that weekend's voters were Black and 57 were female. I have back with me tonight Mr. Timothy Head, the Executive Director of Faith and Freedom Coalition, to help us break down what these early voting numbers mean and why this runoff is so important to pro-lifers. 
Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you so much, Teresa, for having us. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. And Tim, before we talk about the early voting numbers, would you explain, you know, please explain to our vote to the voters out that are watching, why is this runoff such a critical race? Well, you know, there there actually are several things at stake here, uh, Teresa. So uh, among them, obviously, a 50-50 uh, split in the in the Senate. Um, when you're getting to very, very narrow margins like this in the Senate, literally a tie in this case, uh, versus a, a one a one seat uh, majority in the case of, uh, of of if Warnock were to win, you know the the interesting piece is um, the entire caucus kind of takes a little bit of a different dynamic, and so uh, you know your your uh, your voter your your uh, listeners and viewers are very educated on on a lot of life related issues. You know there are some Republican um, uh, senators who are are not necessarily reliably. Um, reliably pro-life, pro you might say. There's probably two or three that are a little bit problematic. And uh, whenever there's going to be a, 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 a tie vote, those uh, senators are less are, are more prone, we'll say, uh, to vote with with the majority. But if there's if it's going to look like it's going to be a, a lost vote anyway, a 51-49 vote, um, you know, senators uh, from Maine and Alaska, for instance, might be more likely to, to go ahead and vote uh, in line. Another interesting dynamic that's uh, that's at play that uh, a lot of people don't necessarily think about. We do a lot of work on the Hill itself. Um, when it's a when when the the Senate is 50-50, that also means that every single committee is is made up of 50% Republicans and 50% Democrats. And so, if uh, if a committee um, does not um, pass a bill out of committee, you know, with the majority, it can't be reported to the floor. And so, um, so there actually are, are some really important stopgaps uh, in place in the case of a 50-50 um, uh, uh, Senate split that, uh, that aren't necessarily what, you know, the first things that you think of uh, when, you, when you kind of are paying attention to Washington, D.C. politics. Yeah, well, that's really important. Thanks for sharing that, because I, I don't think uh, the general population is aware of all of those in intricacies. So thank you for that. But what can we draw from um, these high early voting numbers? Any conclusions? Well, you know, uh, a couple of things. First of all, um, you know, we're uh, as as we uh, we're filming this, uh, we have basically two days left of uh, of early voting and then one day election day uh, next next Tuesday on December the 6th. And uh, and look, I mean, these numbers are are, uh, are significantly higher than uh, than other runoffs that we've seen. Um, but uh, but interestingly enough, so there were about uh, just shy of four million votes that were cast in in the November election. Uh, I would say we're probably on pace to be right at three million, probably just a shade under three million votes cast at this point. Um, and and uh, and I would say that basically. Um, so not only the kind of raw numbers across the state that you just alluded to a few minutes ago, um, but you also have to kind of look at specific counties, parts of the state that those are coming from. Uh, on the, the first Saturday vote, which was last, last Saturday, um, there were about 30 um, typically blue counties, more Democrat counties that, that uh, were responsible mostly for those 180 or so thousand votes that were cast. Uh, but since then, um, more rural and exurban, you know, outskirts of Atlanta, um, uh, uh, the, the, the early vote there has been higher than expected. So, uh, so basically what we're seeing is this margin is closing and it's closing actually quite quickly. Uh, so, uh, honestly, I basically, if, if, if Democrats go in with a sizable lead coming out of early voting, 
then that looks good for Warnock. But if it's very not narrow lead, I would say probably 20,000 or less. That looks very good for uh, for a, a Walker campaign. So, Tim, do you have any predictions on the race? Well, uh, you know, I, I generally not in the prediction business, but I'll, I'll just say uh, that that I am, uh, you know, we're not necessarily a partisan organization, but we care about issues related to life and marriage and, and religious liberty and and, uh, and the like. And I would say that Walker clearly is the more pro-life and, uh, and, and in favor of uh, religious liberty in this in this uh, uh, campaign, which is ironic because he's running against the pastor. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I would say in this case, the pro-life uh, candidate is it's going to be a very close race. But I would I would actually just say, uh, bottom line, I'm cautiously optimistic because uh, this this uh, this gap from the first day of election is actually closing very rapidly. I could kind of go you know, a little more granular than that. But the bottom line is kind of in the in the weeds of the analysis of this. Uh, there actually are, are several different kind of uh, uh, flickers of hope, uh, so to speak, for a, for a Walker campaign. All right. Well, what can pro-lifers around the country do in these last few days to help get Walker elected? Well, you know, clearly, I think uh, um, we, we are people of faith and we do believe in the power of prayer. And so we always want to be mindful of that. Uh, you know, certainly there are opportunities to, to, to make financial contributions in these waning, you know, four or so, four to five days. Uh, uh, the Walker campaign, you know, there's no, no secret. I don't think it's hard to find his, his website, our website. Uh, we actually are in the process. Uh, we've just went over 260,000 doors that Faith and Freedom Coalition has knocked just in this three and a half weeks that we've been in this runoff. So there's opportunities there for sure. And then uh, we also still have opportunities uh, for people outside of Georgia to make phone calls into, uh, into uh, Georgia, uh, the, the electorate here in Georgia. And so you can also visit us online at ffcoalition.com if anybody's uh, interested in, in volunteering by making phone calls. Absolutely. Um, that's awesome because uh, we really, really appreciate all the work that, that you folks do. But as we look forward, Tim, to 2024, what do you believe is necessary for Republicans to do to secure a victory? Well, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start very quickly on the Senate side, which, which does matter a great deal. Uh, there probably are five or six Senate seats. Part of the reason why this is so important uh, is because honestly, every single Senate seat is it, it really does matter. They're kind of uh, they're kind of like small orbiting planets in Washington D.C. unto themselves, and so every Senate seat is important. Probably five or six are on the ballot that are very close, uh, anticipated to be close. You know, one of the challenges that we're seeing is uh, is sometimes uh, Republicans will get a little, uh, some Republicans will get a little tepid on on social issues, which uh, we really believe is actually the exact opposite. We need a stark contrast. Uh, between uh, the right, the political right, and the political uh, left, and so, uh, and and then you know, I think uh, I think the crux of your question question really comes down to uh, to the presidential race, and um, and look, you know, uh, for for us, we we are uh, we certainly are deep appreciators of everything that that President Trump did when he was in office, um, but uh, you know, our our marriage, if you will, is is to these issues that we be, believe are are important to God and important to this country. And we believe that certainly that Trump would continue to be a champion for those issues. Uh, you know, DeSantis uh, uh, has been uh, excellent on these issues in Florida. You know, people like, uh, you know, some other uh, some other governors that are out there that kind of, uh, you know, have tipped their hats a little bit. Greg Abbott in Texas and, you know, maybe some people like Ben Carson um, and, uh, and Mike Pence. You know, that, so the bottom line is for our issue set, which we believe are 
are kind of transcendent, timeless issues. We are we're very encouraged by the kind of the prospects and the the, the long term horizon, if you will, as as we look at these issues. Um, and when it comes down to personalities and and um, and sort of styles, if you will, you know, we uh, we're we're uh, we're friends of many, and we we kind of want to see uh, a thousand flowers bloom in that in that personal regard. Very diplomatic. Thank you. <laughs> so, Tim, can I put you on the spot for a minute and ask what prevented the red wave, uh, the the red tsunami that we were talking about on at the midterm elections? You were on with us uh, that evening. What what prevented that from happening? <clears throat> well, it's a good question, and uh, and honestly, it's um, uh, when you're doing kind of a national analysis on these things, it's it's tricky because there's not one candidate who you can kind of compare and contrast, you know, what happened in Nevada versus Arizona versus Iowa versus Florida. Uh, all of those are different enough. I mean, obviously the states are different, but you also have different people on the ballots, different governors uh, and, and their personalities and, and track records and also different senators and their track records. Uh, and so, you know, I, I would say the biggest takeaway for, for me and for, uh, for us as we've kind of looked carefully through this across the country now for the last few weeks is that uh, so the bottom line is, I think that the United States is just a very tribal uh, country at this point. It's very divided, not only regionally, but but even by states and even down to kind of cities within states, you know. Uh, so uh, so Democrats tend to cluster together. Republicans tend to cluster together and they vote accordingly. Uh, we saw very, very close races in places like, you know, Georgia, where I'm uh, broadcasting from in Nevada, even in Arizona and Pennsylvania, they were fairly close. Um, and, and that just shows that, that uh, you know, you've got probably five, six, seven states that are kind of 50-50, barely 51-49 kinds of states, and, uh, and they, they tend to vote accordingly. And when it gets that close, it's very personality driven, you know, uh, so the candidates really do matter. So it's, you know, there's kind of some, I, I would, I, in my opinion, there's some lazy narratives out there uh, that, that like to say that, you know, maybe abortion was a divisive issue or, or maybe uh, the Democrats did a better job or Biden's, you know, uh, uh, platform is, you know, tacitly approved or something like that. That's really not accurate at all. Uh, that, uh, that in some parts of the country, you know, Trump, for instance, his endorsed candidates did extremely well. And in others parts of the country, they didn't do as well. That, that's there's no clear takeaway about, uh, you know, the kind of the status or, or popularity of Donald Trump in that regard. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it really does require kind of a studious approach and not just this this sort of uh, uh, typecast, you know, generic uh, national assessment, uh, despite, uh, you know, a lot of uh, especially Democratic media, uh, left leaning media that, that are trying to kind of force a round peg into a square hole there. Sure. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us and, and uh, for sharing your insights with us. And we just uh, please thank uh, your team, uh, you know, Ralph Reed and, and everyone there. We so appreciate all of your work. But before you go, what would you like to say to encourage our pro-life friends in Georgia? Well, not just the pro-life uh, uh, friends in Georgia, but honestly, across the country, um, you know, I, I, first of all, I would say the price of, of, uh, of freedom really is eternal vigilance, that we have to stay engaged and not uh, not get kind of weary in doing good, as, as Scripture ad admonishes us. Uh, and secondly, I would just say, you know, find ways to stay involved. And, and I mentioned a couple of phone banking. Certainly you can, can give towards organizations like ours or campaigns or what have you. But we've got to stay engaged because the left is definitely not taking any vacations. All right. Well, thank you again. I hope you'll come back and uh, so we can hopefully celebrate uh, the victory of Walker. I look uh, I look forward to celebrating with you here in just about five days. All right. Sounds great. Thanks again. God bless. Thanks. 
The Georgia Supreme Court last week reinstated the state's Heartbeat Act that protects babies from abortion at about six weeks of pregnancy. The action came just over a week after a lower court judge blocked the law, calling it unconstitutional. The Heartbeat Law was passed in 2019 but has faced legal challenges since then, first in federal courts and now in Georgia's state courts. The June 24 U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade allowed the law to be enacted in July. The plaintiffs in the case, including abortion sellers and the group Sister Song, have appealed the Supreme Court ruling. Also in Georgia, the first bill pre-filed for the 2023 legislative session would require the state to pay for costs incurred giving birth to and raising a child for mothers who wanted to have an abortion but were unable to because of the heartbeat law. The bill is called the Georgia Pro-Birth Accountability Act and its sponsor admits it has no chance of passage. Critics of the bill said it is trivializing the value of human life. A Kansas judge last week blocked a state law that banned doctors from prescribing abortion pills via telemedicine. Shawnee County District Court Judge Teresa Watson, no relation, granted a Wichita Reproductive Clinic's request for a temporary injunction after the Kansas Court of Appeals overturned her previous ruling. The case is continuing, but for now, women can receive deadly abortion drugs without ever having been examined by a doctor. 68% of abortions in Kansas are chemical abortions. In a related matter, a lawsuit filed against the Federal Food and Drug Administration has been described as the greatest legal threat in years to access to abortion pills in America. Alliance Defending Freedom claims in its suit that the FDA exceeded its authority when it used an accelerated process to approve mifepristone, one of two drugs in the abortion pill regimen. The suit was filed in federal district court in Amarillo, Texas, and will be heard by a judge appointed by President Donald Trump leading Bloomberg Law to speculate that the pro-life organization behind the suit will succeed in district court, the U.S. Court of Appeals, and ultimately the Supreme Court. Research by the Charlotte Lozier Institute has shown that chemical abortion has far more complications for women who choose that method. Chemical abortion now accounts for about 54% of all abortions in the U.S. The Federal Department of Health and Human Services has vowed to make all reasonable efforts to abort the children of migrant minor girls. In guidelines, the department sent to its Office of Refugee Resettlement HHS wants minor girls sheltered in states where abortion is legal and will provide taxpayer-funded transportation to such states for girls staying in states where abortion is restricted. Detroit Archbishop Alan Vigneron has called on Michigan Catholics to spend the first two weeks of Advent doing penance following the passage of a ballot initiative that amended the state constitution to allow abortion on demand. Abortion is now legal in Michigan at an unprecedented level and millions of lives are at stake. We must pray and ask God for his mercy upon us for allowing this evil to happen in our state, the bishop wrote in a letter to Catholics. For this reason, I want to invite all the faithful to join me in the first two weeks of Advent, up until December 9th, in doing penance, giving alms, praying, and fasting. We must use these spiritual practices to make reparations for the great sin of abortion in our midst. An attorney for North Dakota asked the state Supreme Court on Tuesday to strike down an injunction blocking the state's abortion ban, saying a lower court judge was wrong to grant it. A county judge blocked the law in October, allowing abortion to remain legal in North Dakota, but the state's only abortion mill already had closed up shop and moved across the Red River to Minnesota by then. The court did not release a timeline on when a decision might be announced. Across the pond, a British woman with Down syndrome has lost her appeal over a law that allows abortion until birth for babies with a genetic condition. Heidi Crowder, the 27-year-old woman who brought the suit, said she was angry that the judges said my feelings do not matter. She plans to appeal. French lawmakers last week backed a proposal to enshrine abortion rights in the country's constitution in a move seen as a response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States. 
The bill passed the National Assembly, the more powerful house of the French Parliament, but still has a long way to go before the French Constitution could be amended. Abortion is legal in France until 14 weeks. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit for a second time has upheld an Indiana law requiring abortion businesses to bury or cremate fetal remains after abortion. Calling the decision a basic win for decency, Indiana Attorney General Todd Rotica said the bodies of aborted babies are more than mere medical waste to be tossed out with the trash. In other news from Indiana, the Attorney General has asked the State Medical Board to discipline an abortionist who performed an abortion on a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio. Rotika said Dr. Caitlin Bernard exploited the girl's story by going to the media to push her own pro-abortion agenda. The girl was reportedly unable to obtain an abortion in Ohio because she was beyond the legal limit for abortion there. And that's abortion in the news. House Democrats on Wednesday elected pro-abortion New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries as the leader of their conference, replacing pro-abortion Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Jeffries will be the House Minority Leader as pro-life Republicans took back control of the House in the midterm elections and will have the majority vote to elect a new Speaker. Jeffries won the post in an uncontested election after Pelosi and Majority Leader Steny Hoyer and Majority Whip Jim Clyburn opted to step down from leading the party. Leadership is incredibly important, said Jeffries. When we get an opportunity as diverse leaders to serve in positions of consequence, the most meaningful thing we can do in that space is an incredibly good job. The Democrat will do a good job representing big abortion and has a 100% pro-abortion voting record in favor of abortions up to birth at taxpayer expense. Jeffries also has been openly hostile towards pro-life Americans, including earlier this year when pro-life organizations were hit with a crime wave of arson, vandalism, and other violence. Jeffries has smeared pro-life Americans repeatedly in recent years describing half the country as a threat and yahoos for believing babies in the womb deserve to be protected from violence. At a press conference in July, Jeffries said, the threat right now in this country to the American people are extreme MAGA Republicans. He continued saying, that's the threat, that's the problem, that's the crisis that we confront, extreme MAGA Republicans. Why? They are extreme on reproductive freedom. GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, is getting ready to exercise his authority under congressional rules and procedures to remove three vocal Democrats from key committees when Republicans take power next year. Normally, Democrat and GOP leaders nominate members of their party to various House committees, and those members are approved when the House passes a resolution appointing the members in a simple majority vote. In the past, these appointments have not been controversial, and only a handful of members were refused committee assignments or had been removed from committees, usually because of ethics violations. However, McCarthy has pledged to block representatives Adam Schiff, Ilhan Omar, and Eric Swalwell from continuing to serve on some of their current committees based on the positions they have taken. McCarthy has the authority to stop those appointments because Republicans will be in the majority again starting next year. One, year. one way of stopping these appointments is to have Republicans vote down any resolution that would place any of the three Democrats onto a committee where McCarthy does not want them. However, even if Republicans are divided on whether to carry out this punishment, 
McCarthy can still block the resolution from coming to the floor until Democrats relent and pull the assignments. Democrats have little recourse to fight against such tactics, given the extensive powers available to the majority party in the House. Republicans argue that Schiff, Omar, and Swalwell have each done something disqualifying to warrant the punishment. McCarthy said Sunday that Schiff has lied to the American public time and time again about former President Donald Trump working with Russia during the 2016 election, and thus should not serve on the House Intelligence Committee. McCarthy said Omar must be removed from the House Foreign Affairs Committee over her criticism of Israel that some see as anti-Semitic, and Swalwell should not serve on the House Intelligence Committee because of his association with a Chinese spy. Washington now has a check and balance, said McCarthy. The American people have a say in their government. Senator Mike Braun, Republican from Indiana, has filed paperwork to run for Indiana governor in 2024, which would open up his Senate seat in the next election cycle. Braun's decision may open the door for a crowded GOP primary. The Senate race could influence the balance of power in the upper chamber during an election year when Democrats face great obstacles to hold on to their slim majority. Indiana Representatives Victoria Sparts and Representative Jim Banks have both voiced interest in running for the Senate seat in the past. Braun, serving his first term in the Senate, hopes to replace Republican Governor Eric Holcomb, who is term limited in what is likely to be a competitive race. Former president of the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, Eric Doden, announced he will seek the Republican nomination in the race to succeed Holcomb in 2021, over three years before Election Day. The first-term senator was elected in 2018 when he ousted the sitting Democrat, then-Senator Joe Donnelly, winning by a sizable 12-point margin. The Indiana Republican, who previously served as a state representative, was notably one of the most vocal supporters of Senator Rick Scott's failed attempt to out minority leader Mitch McConnell as GOP leader after the 2022 midterms. And that's political news in a nutshell. Last week, the Federal Centers for Disease Control released its abortion surveillance report for the year 2020, and it showed a decrease in the number of abortions from the previous year, but that doesn't tell the whole story. I've asked Dr. Michael New to join us to break down the numbers. Michael is a research associate in the Bush School of Business at Catholic University of America and an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Welcome, Michael. Oh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Well, I want to ask you about the timing of the release first. The afternoon of the day before Thanksgiving, was the CDC hoping no one would notice? Uh, it's very strange. I mean, they usually do this. Uh, they often release abortion data Wednesday before Thanksgiving, not just Wednesday, the Wednesday afternoon before Thanksgiving. Right. So I cannot think of a worse time to release any information that might be interesting to people. I don't know what they're trying to hide or conceal, uh, but it's very strange timing on the CDC's part. It certainly is. But so the numbers are slightly lower for 2020 than for 2019. Was that to be expected given the COVID situation? We really didn't know exactly how COVID was going to impact uh, abortion numbers. And one thing that we're you know, happy about is that numbers did, in fact, go down. Again, the CDC data did show that you know both the number of abortions and the abortion rate fell by about 2% in 2020. And that's a big deal because the CDC's previous reports show that abortion numbers increased in both 2018 and 2019. So the fact that abortion numbers fell in 2020 is welcome news. Definitely. 
But the report also contained what we in pro-life consider bad news. The number of chemical abortions continues to rise. What what should we make of that? Right. That uh, one thing that's an issue of concern for pro-lifers was this report showed a big increase in chemical abortions. Between 2019 and 2020, the number of chemical abortions increased by almost 18%. Uh, right now, according to the CDC, more than half of all abortions are chemical abortions. And part of that was a pandemic. I think some women seeking abortions uh, prefer to obtain a chemical abortion uh, than go out and obtain a surgical abortion. Also during the pandemic, uh, the FDA changed the rules. Uh, they said that women could obtain a chemical abortion without an in-person medical exam. So that made it a little bit easier for abortion vulnerable women uh, to obtain these dangerous chemical abortions. One thing that should concern pro-lifers is that the Biden administration has continued this FDA policy. You know, right now under the Biden administration, women seeking chemical abortions uh, can still obtain chemical abortion drugs without an in-person medical exam. And obviously, chemical abortions are fatal to unborn children, but they're also dangerous to women as well. If a woman is in ectopic pregnancy and she obtains a chemical abortion, that could be fatal. If a woman is further along in gestation, she realizes, and she's a chemical abortion, that could pose some very negative, serious health consequences. So this is something pro-lifers have to push back against, both through, I think, legislation and litigation. Yeah. So any other trends that you noticed in the report? Later abortions, younger girls having abortions, anything stick out for you? I mean, one thing that we really saw from this report is that public policy uh, does matter, that during the pandemic, you had about five states that went ahead and prevented abortions from taking place. And in four of those states, you really saw abortion numbers go down by substantial margins. Uh, in Oklahoma, abortions fell by 24 percent. In Louisiana, they fell by about 8 percent. In Alabama, they fell by almost 5%. And in Texas, they fell by more than 3%. So policies that really go ahead and protect unborn children are effective and really do uh, you know, protect unborn children and spare women a, a lifetime of regret. Mm -hmm. So we have a long wait before the CDC reports numbers for 2022. But do you think abortion restrictions in more than a dozen states will have a big impact on this year's numbers? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are protecting pre-born children in 13 states. Uh, also in Georgia, pre-born children are protected after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. I think those numbers will increase. And one thing we're excited about is we actually have some very good data out of Texas, uh, even prior to Dobbs. Uh, the Texas heartbeat bill took effect on September 1st, 2021, and that protected pre-born children after about six weeks gestation. And what's exciting is we have some new birth data coming from Texas. And we saw record numbers of children being born in Texas uh, that starting in March 2022 to uh, July 2022, we think about 5,000 more children were born in Texas. So the Texas Heartbeat Act is already saving thousands of lives. And the other protective pro-life laws are probably saving thousands of lives as well. well. That is good news. But our abortion reporting is kind of dismal with some states declining to provide information. Do you see that changing in the future? Uh, unfortunately, I think that there are some states that are uh giving us better and more timely data, but there are some states that are not. Uh, California has not reported any abortion data to the CDC since 1997. Maryland and New Hampshire uh, typically uh, don't report abortion data to the CDC. And uh, I think that's something pro-lifers should prioritize. I think that you would think that, you know, better data is something that would, you know, benefit everybody interested in, in this issue. Uh, but our opponents uh, don't seem terribly concerned by this. So I think that's something that, you know, pro-life should certainly push during the next pro-life presidential administration. Okay. Well, thank you so much for making the time to join us this evening to make sense of the numbers and for being an advocate for, of, for the unborn. Good night. Good night. Thanks for having me.
Well, Leslie, that was a great week with some good news for the unborn and, and some That's not so good. It is great that Georgia's Heartbeat Act is enforceable again, so at least babies are being protected there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Christmas is right around the corner. I, I mean, I can't believe it. Thanksgiving's over. Christmas is, is here almost. Have you started your shopping? I have. I've done a, a lot of online shopping, so I'm getting packages delivered every day. Wow, good <laughs> so, for you. Yeah. <laughs> good for um, you. I just want to remind our guests who are still Christmas shopping that we had a, a beautiful young woman named Raquel on a few weeks ago. She has Down syndrome and she has her own jewelry business online. So if you want to check out her website, it's RaquelBeautiful.com. And you can get all of your pro-life product gifts, including some beautiful children books bundles, and we've got some new great t-shirts and hoodies at ProLifeProducts.org. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priests for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will join us every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We hope you will support this show and all of our broadcasts, including Just Ask Janet, our daily masses, and Father Frank's broadcasts by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating the pro-life community to end abortion. Do you have an idea for a story for us? Are you someone whose baby was saved because of the help of a sidewalk counselor? Would you like to expose something in the abortion industry? Then please email us at media at priestsforlife.org. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. And I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.